Welcome to a very special Project I'm Speaking episode of Bull Spirals. Project I'm Speaking episodes are a series of interviews conducted with the intention of featuring brave and talented women who agreed to speak up about their creative process, about how they found their unique voices, and how they intend to use those gorgeous voices in the world now. Because we need this. All of us need this right now, more than ever. So enjoy this time and this unique voice while you take in this episode of Project I'm Speaking. I'm Stacy Parrish. Rubin is an author, producer, and raconteur who's been steeped in the craft of storytelling her entire life. The daughter of a Manhattan appliance store owner, she grew up appreciating the enthralling and persuasive stories of the salesman in her father's store, and she always had a knack for storytelling herself and for understanding where stories can take us. She's the producer of The Moth in Madison, True Stories Told Live, executive producer of Love, Wisconsin, a digital storytelling project that aims to celebrate the state and unite folks through breaking barriers. And she also volunteers with Odyssey Behind Bars, where she leads three-day workshops teaching folks in prison to craft and tell their own stories. Her book, We Are Staying, 80 Years in the Life of a Family, a Store, and a Neighborhood, chronicles the story of her father's store radio clinic on 98th and Broadway on Manhattan's Upper West Side. We sat down to have a talk about her life, the process, and the importance of storytelling just before she was about to lead a skill building workshop for storytellers in Appleton. So thank you so much for making the trip here. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it was funny to me, like, I have two storytelling things to do in Appleton today, which is, you know, it's not my usual. So. Yeah. So, um, not that I'm going to go full on James Lipton or anything, but I do always like to start with like, where were you born and all of that kind of stuff? Because I know that right? because I read your book and because I know about you. But um, so can we do This Is Your Life, Jen Rubin? Like, where were you born? Yeah. Well, I was born in Suffern, New York, which is uh, a suburb, maybe about 30, 30 minutes from New York City. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, born and raised there. And do you have siblings? I have an older brother, and um, and and then my parents. I have a bunch of cousins, and I have a, a grandmother who spent a chunk of every summer living with us. And mm. um, you know, I had a family dog. You know, the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> so. I do want to circle back to your grandma at or your grandmother at at some point. But um, so you're the baby. I am the baby, and you know, I know I have friends like. You can't call yourself the baby. You're the youngest of two. I'm like, well, that's true. But I'm also the youngest of like all the cousins. And mm. so, you know, where I grew up, at, like we were all live within like 20 miles of each other. So we saw each other a lot. So, so, cause I, I am very much a youngest, you know, but I'm like, I'm more of a youngest than it would seem. <laughs> so. Okay. Okay. And, and what did your parents do? Um, well, so my, my dad, um, ran a small business, uh, his father, um, opened the business in 1934, uh, and it was in, in in New York City, and so 
yeah, so that's what my dad did my whole childhood. And then my mom um, went to college when I was in middle school. And so, um, and then, so, so she was home when I was young and then we were like doing our homework together, you know, through middle school. And then by the time, maybe by the end of my high school, she got, she got her first job. So that's so cool. What did she go to school for? Well, so she was, you know, I don't know, like, um, I don't know if this is just true of like white middle-class women of a certain age or certain time. But so (laughs) she grew up in a working class family, you know, not a lot of money. I guess working class is actually optimistic of what they were. Um, and so, um, at the time, um, you could go to a a two year teaching college for free in New Jersey where she grew up. And so that was sort of what women in her world did. They went to be like a teacher or a secretary. So my mom was a kindergarten teacher, um, I think until she got married and I don't think she was happily a kindergarten teacher. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, um, so then she, my dad made enough in the business. So she was able to stay home, um, in our early years. And Uh then she went to college to, to to do something other than be a teacher. (laughs) So she, um, it was more like a sort of program development or something like that. She went to the new school in Manhattan and then she went on and she started working, um, for the, in the state senator's office doing constituent work. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I used to think like, you know, when I was feeling like I don't know if I'm doing the right work or I'm not, not sure if I'm doing what I want to do. And I thought, well, my mom didn't even go to college till her early forties. Yeah. That's and amazing. she actually went on to have like a, she ended up being, you know, running a foundation. Like she ended up having a great career, but didn't really kick into her fifties. So. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That was kind of um, aspirational for me. That's really cool. Okay. So, We'll talk more about your dad later when we talk about your book, because there's another thing about how your grandfather started the business that I think ties in really neatly to what you do now. Yeah. I mean, anyone listening, if you're over 40, perhaps, or something, um, probably grew up at some point where there's lots of like mom and pop small businesses in your neighborhood, right? We used Mm -hmm. to be more of a country where you could do that. And so my uh, grandfather opened the business in 1934 at a time where... They're only they're only small businesses, right? And so he opened this repair shop at a time where we repaired things, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so uh, so it was so he was an immigrant to this country. His family fled Russia because if you think of Fiddler on the Roof, it's the Fiddler on the Roof story where Jews are being murdered or displaced, and his father was killed. So they came here when he was twelve, and um, he taught himself how to fix radios. And this was at a time where everyone had radios. Um, so anyhow, so we opened, I think in his early twenties, um, what he called radio clinic. Mm-hmm. Cause he's a, he's like a good gimmick guy. Mm-hmm. So he essentially, the, the gimmick was that he sat in the storefront window and a doctor smock with a stethoscope and a screwdriver and he fixed the radios. Right. And, and then he got, people came in and the business was sort of on its way. So my grandfather started it in 1934. And then my dad, when he was maybe like in his mid to late twenties came into the business. And that's the piece that I thought was so interesting as far as what you do now telling stories. Yeah. Like, like what a, I mean, that's practically theater. Yeah, I know. Isn't it? And, and, uh, I, I always loved hearing that story. I mean, you know, and, and, and uh, just get picture him just sitting there, you know, uh, doing it. Yeah. So it was a visual. It was a visual story for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. And the thing about, so the thing about New York in particular, and I'm sure it was true of Appleton at some point in time where there's just a lot of 
people walking by the store, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you can get their attention visually, like that's what you want. Yeah. So that's so genius. Let's, let's just dive into your book as long as we're, as long yeah. as we're talking about the business. So your book is, we are staying 80 years in the life of a family, a store and a neighborhood. And you mention in the book that your first job was, I mean, it is the best first job. Um, it was um, playing video games in the storefront window. And so this was when those big Atari arcade video games came out, right? So, right uh, which, which I think now you probably only find them in like those sort of, well, you can find them, you find them in bars mostly. Mm-hmm. And so um, at the time, this was even before like Pac-Man came out or anything, and it was the Evil Knievel stunt cycle. And so, oh, you, wow. yeah, so you're basically trying to like get your fake car to jump over all the trucks the way Evil Knievel did. So anyhow, so... um like I said, this was a street that had, you know, thousands of people walk by, mm. you know, in the course of a day, because it was two blocks from the main subway station. And so my dad paid me a dollar an hour and I stood in the storefront window and played video games and caught people's attention as they came by. So that's amazing. Yeah, it's I like to say it's been downhill ever since, you know, in terms of <laughs> as far as my jobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so he was in that window and then later you were in that window. Um was there anything challenging about having your parents run that store? Well, my dad ran the store. My mom. Oh, didn't. that's right. That's yeah. right. Your mom was a kindergarten teacher, and then she was home with you guys. And she certainly wasn't that. No, she wasn't that. Being in the store was not her thing. You yeah, know, necessarily. Um, well, so I mean, when I was a kid, there wasn't really anything challenging about it because, I mean, I guess the challenging part was that my my dad worked very long hours because mm-hmm. that's just the life of a. Very small business owner. Yeah. Um, but like, I loved going to the store. I mean, it was just all fun for me. Mm. Um, I wasn't really paying attention to whatever was actually going on, you know, in the store, you know, so, uh, so it was just, I got to have time with my dad and I got to be in the store and it was just such an interesting place to be in terms of the human beings that were in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neighborhood, it's a, always been a very lively neighborhood. So when I was a kid, it was all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think I was very serious about running, running. I feel like running kind of like saved me mm. as growing up. Like that was, that was, uh, where I got some sense of self because I, well, I don't know if you've ever been a runner, but it's, it's, I think of it as a, this linear thing. Like, I feel like I tried hard at school. I didn't do well at school. I tried hard with friends. Didn't always work. Uh, certainly nothing was happening romantically. You know what I mean? Like, so, and, but running was, Oh, I can work hard at it and then I'm better, you know, like my times are going down. So it was this moment of like, so it actually was sort of personally revelatory to me that Mm -hmm. I could work hard at something and just be better um, Mm. and actually do well, you know? So, um, so I, that was where I, you know, I was all about that. Like I wasn't about anything else. Like that was my young life. Um, But then as I got older and I started working, I worked at a fair housing center. I worked doing, um, anti-violence work, stuff like that, I started to realize like I was always gravitating towards, well, what's the story we want to tell? What's the human story? What's the story behind the data? Um, and it took me a little while to realize like, oh, that was what I was bringing to every place that I worked. Um, and that that was something that I did well, you know, that was very appreciated like that, mm-hmm. that perspective that I brought to the work. Yeah. So where did the title We Are Staying come from? Yeah. So actually, you know, you were mentioning that storefront window that my grandfather sat at and that I play games at. And so we are staying as a sign that my dad kind of 
famously, locally famously put up because there had been, um, in 1977, there was this blackout through the, through the entire city. Mm. So there was a heat wave. There was like a cascading series of unfortunate events that led to the city going dark for 25 hours. And so, um, it was on a hot, hot summer night and, um, all five boroughs, people started looting the stores. And so I think something like 1800 stores were looted and um, destroyed. And so my family's store radio clinic was one of them. And so my dad, um, you know, when the power went out, he had assumed he didn't think about the looting. He was worried about the motor going out on the freight elevator or whatever. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he comes by to watch his store be destroyed. So anyhow, he ends up going home um, because, you know, there wasn't much else to do at some point. Came back in the morning and saw the destruction of his store. But my dad's, I like to think, I refer to him as a compulsive optimist. And so my dad is right away, like, figuring out how to reopen the store. But the neighbors, I mean, everyone's just shocked when they see how destroyed the neighborhood is. So they're coming in and asking him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So my dad wasn't trying to, you know, say any sort of, big catchphrase or anything. He was just like, please stop asking me questions. I'm busy. So he just wrote, we are staying in big letters on Mm -hmm. um, like a piece of paper or something. And he just taped it to the window. And that sort of became, when people saw that sign, they were just like, the neighbors are coming in with flowers. They were crying. And they're like, well, if you're staying, we're staying. So it it became iconic. Locally. He didn't mean for it to, but it did. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so like when I had heard that story, I'm like, well, that certainly sounds like a book title. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you and I had a chance to have a conversation before we sat down today and we met through the, you are the producer of the moth in Madison. Yeah. And, um, I kind of asked you how you got started with that. And it turns out we kind of have a little bit in common with this. So 10 years ago, 2013-ish, you had it as sort of a midlife challenge to tell a moth story because you had been listening to the moth for years. Yeah. Yeah. um, I was like an early podcast adapter or whatever. Mm. And so, I mean, there weren't so many in the early days of it. And so the moth was an early podcast. So that's when I started listening to it and just was like, oh, this is cool. What is this? People telling stories? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what made you, what was the catalyst for that? Do you remember? To go tell the story? Yeah. So um, I, you know, I I had always known I can tell a good story, you know, and um, I brought storytelling not oral storytelling, but I brought storytelling into like how I used to do my advocacy work and things of that nature. And so, um, I think at some point I was like, it just might be fun to get up and see how it would go to be tell a story. And Mm -hmm. I was at that point in my life trying to challenge myself to try new things and do new things. And so, so yeah, so I, I didn't realize that the moth, um, had story slams anywhere but New York. So when I learned that there was one in Milwaukee, I'm like, all right, I got six friends. I'm like, let's go, let's do this. So, so was money, was that your first slam? Cause I watched your, you have some videos on your website. No, because those have been in Milwaukee. I it wouldn't be, no, I, th- I remember because it was, uh, the theme was aftermath. And uh, so I remember, yeah, so that was that okay. was the first one I did. Okay, because that story, Money... Well, it's it's a similar story. It was okay. a similar story. So the reason why... So I will say, so now that I produce it in Madison, I don't tell stories because it feels wrong for okay. a producer to tell a story. Uh-huh. That's not my role there. But um, if sometimes we don't get to 10 names. So I always try to have like a loose idea in, in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so that month, we didn't, we only got to nine names. And then... I'm like, oh, I can take that aftermath story and just kind of tinker with it and 
tell it slightly different. So it's it's a it's a similar story. Okay. Yeah. Can we talk about how you brought the moth to Madison, and then just talk a little bit about what the moth is? So so the moth is is basically you know community storytelling. Um, and it's been around for about 25 years. It was started in New York City. And it's just sort of, if, if anyone's ever been to a poetry slam, you know, the story slams are similar to that, except it's in a poetry, it's stories. And so, um, yeah, the idea is you get up as a person, tell a story from your life. Don't, no notes. It's not a rant. It's not a speech. You tell a story. And ideally, it's an actual story that has like a little bit of a story arc to it. And so I just sort of fell in love with it when I first heard it on the podcast years ago because I love listening to stories. You know, I come from, um, yeah, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I mean, I grew up watching salesmen, you know, at a time where that's how, like, salesmen know how to tell stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, good salesmen, you know, and I just like, you know, some used humor, some used whatever. So I was just always a fan of a good story. And so, um, I went to Milwaukee, which was the only moth story slam that was happening. It was in, it was in Milwaukee. <laughs> and, uh, and so when you win a story slam, you get invited to a grand slam. So I told a grand slam and then I met um, one of the New York producers there. And then she invited me to one of their main stages, which is a much more curated produce show. And that was in New York. And so I got a chance to meet the people that run it in New York. And I was like, why are you not at Madison? And I think they had it. It's, it's not like I suggested it. So they did it. I mean, I think they had it in their mind that it was a place to go, but I was just constantly following up, like, let me know if you come to Madison, like I have ideas, you know, I know where you could do it or whatever. And then at some point they're like, we're coming to Madison and do you want to produce it? And I had never produced anything in my life. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I think I do actually. (laughs) So, so, uh, so yeah, so that's how, that's how I came to Madison. That's a very cool sequence of events. Yeah. Initially in my mind, I wanted to come to Madison because I don't want to drive to Milwaukee anymore. But now that I'm producing it, I don't really feel like I can tell the stories, but I actually, I mean, I do miss getting up and telling stories, but I just, I really enjoy producing, really mm. getting people in the door. And um, I, I think I like that more. Yeah. I don't know about more, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so having watched you tell your stories on the videos that are on your website and just knowing how good you are and how skilled you are at the craft of storytelling, I am so looking forward to your workshop tonight. I am really excited to do it. I have to say, you know, I think like, I think... All of us, we all have like, you know, something we are good at, whether it's, you know, you're a great yo-yo or whatever it is, like everyone has like something they were like doing good at. And, and the fact that the thing that I'm good at is like, it can be useful for other people is just lovely. So, and, and because a lot of what I've been doing storytelling workshop wise has been over zoom or virtually, it's just exciting to be in a room of people, you know, today. So, Yeah. yeah, I loved the hook. Let people know from the meat grinder story. Oh, well, that's my grandma. I think it was sharing stories at my grandmother that first made me realize and other people realize like, oh, you're a good storyteller because she's like the most colorful person in my family, mm-hmm. you know, and there's just so many rich stories that I would just tell about it, which is why it sort of interested me that the, the, the first book I wrote was actually about my dad's side of the family because it's my mom's mom and family. That's the more colorful family. So. Well, and, and she, she came up in two of the stories on your website, stories that you told one <laughs> in the money story when you said uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the handful. And then when she said about the meat grinder, when she leaned into you and said, let people know. Yeah. Like about the meat grinder. Right. But that it seemed like that wasn't all she was saying. And I just thought how poignant. 
Yeah. You know, the thing about, you know, my grandmother, and I think anyone who has a grandparent that came from a different country and had a different language as a first language, you know, there's, there's like love there and there's time there, but there's also this sort of cultural divide, you know? And so, and my, my mother's the youngest and then I'm the youngest. So we had probably like 60 years or more between us. Um, and you know, English was not her first language. So, uh, you know, and one of the ways she cared about me is she was very worried that I wasn't getting married, you know? (laughs) And so, um, so she said that she would, add the meat grinder to the dowry, so to speak, you know, if, uh, if I could just get a husband, I'd get the meat grinder. So, yeah. And then she said, let people let know. people know. Cause she, well, because I think she didn't, you know, uh, so she was a very confident woman. She was a very beautiful woman. Um, she was very sure of herself and I was very clearly not, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think she didn't trust that I would adequately, you know, make hay with the meat grinder <laughs> the way she, you know, would like me to. <laughs> so she didn't trust me to get the word out adequately. Oh my yeah, gosh. So it just sounds like having her around was so rich. Yes. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the crime of youth, right? How you just don't quite realize what you're around. But so my grandmother's Yiddish. She was a Yiddish folk singer and she had, uh, her, her boyfriend uh, was Yaakov was a Yiddish folk singer. And so they would, you know, in the late seventies, they would, they would be singing into a tape recorder. And it was one of those things that, I don't know if you remember the seventies, like there's these very small tape recorders mm-hmm. that had like only four functions. It's not like it's complicated. I got one every Christmas. Yeah. And so apparently I, like I would have to not watch television and I'd have to sit with them to press like play, rewind, record, stop, you know? And to me, it was just torture. I was like, what, like, what is happening here? <laughs> like, why can't you do this yourselves? You know, why can't I watch a Vernon Shirley, uh, you know? And so, but I would just sit there with them and record for them because whatever, you can't say no to your right, right. grandparent. So, um, yeah. So it's now like one of my fondest memories, you know, just sitting Aww. there with them. But at the time, I was not fond of it at all. So so did you always know how to craft a story or where did you learn that? Well, so that's the thing that's interesting about this. So I hadn't really realized, like, like I knew I'm good conversationally, you know, with the story, you know, like, uh, but it was when I, so it was when I first started listening to The Moth and, you know, I really like some stories I put on. I didn't like some stories I put on. So I just started diagramming them all. I was trying to figure out like, really? what do I, why do I like this? Why don't I like this? And then, then it became clear to me like, oh, I, like I see what the beats are to a story, you know, or the beats I like to a story. Um, and so you just naturally started doing that. I mean, <laughs> cause that's, I, cause I was trying to figure out like, well, why is this one not landing well for me? Or why is this one landing for me? So I just was trying to figure out like, what were the elements that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so I sort of came up with like my personal rules for uh-huh. what, what I, what I want to try and make sure I do in a story. One thing you said during our phone call that really resonated with me too, was you said you didn't know that you were good at anything until storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously that I have a lot of like, you know, self doubt and all of that, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think I, I seem to have surrounded myself with very smart people. So I always just feel like, you know, <laughs> you know, so I'm just like, well, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that. Um, and I used to feel like, um, I wish I had learned something useful to do. Like I wish I was like, I wish I had become a nurse or become a mechanic or a masseuse, like something that I could 
use in a socially useful way, you know? And I was like, oh, damn it. Like it's too late for that or whatever. And then at some point is, I think it's when I started volunteering with the Odyssey Project, which is a, it's like a, it's like a high level humanities class through the UW. Mm -hmm. That's for students who've had like significant obstacles to higher education. But then uh, once I learned of my storytelling background, I started offering the storytelling class. And, and that's when I realized, oh, helping people craft their own stories, exactly how they want to tell their stories is something I can share and do. And that's when I, and then, and then as I started doing more of that and people were really putting together really great stories, I thought, Oh no, like I'm good at this, you know? Mm. And, um, so that was, that was a nice feeling for me. You know? Yeah. So you mentioned the, um, the Odyssey project. When did you start working with the Odyssey project? It's probably almost 10 years ago, maybe nine or 10 years ago. Okay. And you do Odyssey behind bars. Yeah. So basically, um, so the Odyssey project, um, maybe about nine years ago, Kevin Mullen, who's an instructor started a write is like a writing class for alumni. And so it's like, this really, you know, amazing class and, um, a whole lot of things happen that I'm not a part of, but Kevin and I came up with this idea that there would be this three part storytelling workshop at the end of it. So session one, I, and sometimes Tequila Benton, who I do this podcast with a, a different podcast. Um, we do sort of a skill building workshop, same as I'm going to do this evening. Mm-hmm. And then the second week I bring in several storytellers and we just all work in groups of three with students and they get very intensive feedback on their stories. Then the final week of class, everyone performs their story and it's just, lovely and everybody loves it. So the year before the pandemic, Odyssey um, now has Odyssey behind bars. So they're in a couple prisons and it's the same writing class. And so I, we do the same thing, just behind bars and not outside of bars. Okay. So, yeah. And you just had an Odyssey graduate at the Moth Grand Slam on Friday, right? Yeah, it was a, it was very exciting. So the Moth Grand Slam for, for, for anyone who's not familiar with it, so how the how the Moth Story Slam works is every month somebody wins Story Slam, and then every year you have a Grand Slam on a very big stage, like eight hundred people in the audience, and the the last year's winners tell stories. So yes, yeah, so Marisol was the first Odyssey alumni, um, and she was she was um, she was in the second writing class. I did. So yeah. So and then and then next year another person, Mark, uh, who took the class in Oak Hill Correctional Facility, the week he got out, he came to a moth and told a story in one. So that was, that was also cool. So he'll be at the next one. What is the name of your podcast? It's called Inside Stories. Okay. Cause yeah. I heard Mark on Inside Stories yeah. and it's a great story. It's a great story. Yeah. He like had been out of prison for five days. Like it was. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So. It's oh my story. God. Yeah. I'll share a link to, um, Inside Stories. Yeah. I'll share that on the um, in the show notes. Um, and then you are also, you also work for the Wisconsin Humanities Council as the producer of Love, Wisconsin. Yeah. So that just happened two years ago. Um, I had been, um, I would, so Love, so Wisconsin, every state has a Humanities Council. Mm-hmm. And primarily what Humanities Councils do is they fund community programs and projects that are humanities-based. Um, and so... Um, but Love Wisconsin, which is a statewide digital storytelling project, is now part of Wisconsin Humanities. So I did some freelance work for them. I would do some of the stories for them. But then during the pandemic, I got hired to to, to produce it, to be like whatever, the main producer. Yeah, so I've been doing that for two years. Bonus. So yeah, so that's that's what this thing is tonight. Is It's through Wisconsin Humanities that we're doing this storytelling workshop at the Appleton Library. Okay, that's very cool. Yeah. Um 
in the back of your book, this isn't really this isn't really about stories, but just one thing that I found fascinating is um, that you make soundtracks yeah. for almost everything you do. Yeah, you know, I feel like that's less true in the last three or four years. Um, I feel like Spotify has just made me lazy. I don't know. Spotify just makes it too easy or something. But yeah, I mean, I was always a, you know, this is mixed cassette days, you know, where it's, you know, it's like, what I want to do while I clean the room, what I want to do on a car trip, you know, or, you know, I was always excited when anybody had a big breakup. I'm like, oh my God, I get to make a love, <laughs> love gone bad, bad mix, you know. Oh my so, God. Where did that come from? Well, you know, so... Um, partly, um, so my brother, who's a couple years older, he was one of those radio station guys. Like he ran the radio station at his high school and his college, Okay, you know? And so, so I think, I think my love of music maybe came from him somewhat. I don't know, but I always just love a good mix. Like, you know, if I, if I had a favorite musician that had, you know, five great albums, I would always make a mix of my favorite songs only to put on a cassette so I could hear exactly what I want to hear. So I don't Mm -hmm. know. I think I've always just been a fan of making mixes. Yeah. As a child of the eighties, I can so relate to making mixtapes totally. And, and also, um, using music to push through a task. I love how you have a different Spotify list for every single chapter. Yeah. Well, the thing, each chapter is a different time period. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I worked on this book for six years, so I needed like something. So, you know, I would make myself like, let's get in the mood. What was New York like in the 1930s, you know, or, uh, here's my grandfather escaping Russia. Let's let's have some Russian songs or, you know, the the growth of hip hop after the looting. Like, let's put on some hip hop, you know, so whatever. It just helped me get in the mood. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to uh, sharing your craft with storytelling coming so naturally to you, how did you formulate the curriculum for your workshops? Did you do that on your own? Yeah, I, I mainly did it on my own. There's actually someone I, I in the early days I'd created some workshops with Brendan Pankey, who um, was part of another storytelling group. So he worked on it with me some too, but I think it was really a lot of it was like trial and error, like what I thought worked, what I thought didn't work, you know, just trying to break down, like, what do I think people need to know? And then coming up with exercises that I thought would help us get at it. Mm -hmm. But I just, you know, know, I think like anyone who teaches anything, well, okay, what are the three things you want people to know? Because they're certainly not going to leave knowing more than three things. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, I used to do, um, I was like director of education for the statewide advocacy group. And so spent time thinking about people learn in different ways, right? So like, okay, so how do you get at that thing you want someone to learn in two or three different ways? Mm-hmm. So, so just kind of putting it together that way. Yeah. So what's the best part about doing what you do? I really, I've, I've really come to think that the most, the person who's most impacted by telling, by, by storytelling is the person who tell, like telling your story impacts you more than the per, than it does a person hearing it. Not saying that person doesn't get impacted. Right. But the, the real power is watching myself or anybody put together a story of their life, exactly how they want to tell it mm-hmm. and then telling it. Right. And just seeing what that does for someone um, or for myself or for anyone. I feel like that's my favorite thing, you know, and that, you know, and so, and I think it's partly, I was saying to someone like, it's so easy for me to be, to be liked, you know, because it's like, okay, so say I'm working, say you come to me with a story and you tell me your story or the elements. I'm like, that's great. But you know what? Like, tell me a little bit more about this because, and then, and then I help 
So I have all this curiosity about you and then I help you figure out a way to say it even better. Right. So of course you're going to like me. You know? so, so it's just like, so I feel like it's not fair really. Cause, anyways. <laughs> Cause I'm asking you about you. Yeah. Well, and then I say that's super cool and it could even be cooler. Let me help you, you yeah. know, figure out. So anyway, um, but I, I think I just love getting a chance to work with truly a wide spectrum of people um, and, and seeing how they feel about having now just told their story exactly how they want to tell it. What are the universals? Well, so I think I'm going to get at your question a little sideways possibly, but sure. in some ways that sort of gets to what makes a good story, mm-hmm. right? Cause I think like we all have all these incredible anecdotes, but they're not quite a story. It's like an anecdote. And what makes an anecdote a story are the universals. And what is universal? Like I might not have anything in common with you in terms of like ethnicity or income or religion or whatever, but we all have been humiliated, right? Mm-hmm. We all have been, you know, angry or we all feel guilt about our parenting or whatever it is. Right. And so that's universal is this human emotion that we all have, mm-hmm. even though the details and the anecdotes might be quite different. And so I think that's the thing that's always been interesting and great in working with people is connecting on those universals mm-hmm. and being able to laugh about those universals or being able to you know, feel bad about those universals or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything universal about the process for people? Do people tend to go through a similar process or not necessarily? I don't know. I think, um, so, I mean, I will say, um, I could be in any group of people, you know, it could be in a class with 15 inside a prison. I could be with 15 people in a library or a classroom or whatever. Um, and no matter what, um, when they tell, when they, if they, if that particular group of 15 people tell their story in the process, there's going to be three really heavy stories. There's going to be a story about your first kiss. There's going to be a story about some crazy childhood thing, right? So that's, what's been interesting. Like it doesn't matter who these 15 people are, Mm. they're going to fall on the same spectrum of, you know, certain percentage tell heavy, certain percentage tell funny. So so that's, that's been, that's been interesting. Wow. Cause that's one thing when I, when I first was telling folks about the workshop I did in the prison, like, Oh, that must be like a heavy, heavy day of stories. I'm like, no, not everyone's, everybody wants to tell a heavy story, you know? Yeah. And so I have this thing, it'll be on the, I'm probably going to quote both of these things wrong, but I always put this on the handouts I give, which is, so there's that, you know, incredible Maya Angelou quote, which is something about the untold, the agony of an untold story inside of you or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely quoting her poorly, but then there's also, and I think it's an Ira Glass quote from this American life, which is good stories happen to those who can tell it. Right. And so, the story could be about that you can never tie your shoelace as well, but if you tell it well, it's a good story, you know? Mm. So, so trying to give people permission, like you don't have to tell a hard story and you don't have to not tell a hard story. You know, it's whatever you want to tell. Yeah. I just went through that this weekend. So I was at a storytelling, it was like a story swap. The Wisconsin storytellers had a, had an event oh, and, cool. and I, yeah. And I was scared to go because I just like, when I went to the moth in April where we met, Yeah, that's like the first time that I, it's not the first time I told a story, but it's the first time I gave myself permission to be a storyteller, right? To exactly. call myself yeah. a storyteller and and you know 
anyway, so I met this thing this weekend and um, it was very much like we're all friends. We're just here to anyway. So there was it was a swap. So just swapping stories. And one of the one of the swaps was it was environmental stories. And I had already told both of the stories that I had in some in a couple right. of the other swaps. And I was like, I don't have anything to tell. I don't have anything to tell. And, and the woman who was facilitating said, it's it's just your life. Right. Is there anything, anything even vaguely re- related to in, to the environment? And I had a rock in my pocket because rocks have been my thing since I was little. And I carry rocks. I just do. Like polished rocks, minerals, you know, semi-precious gems. Like it's just my thing. And I had it in my pocket because I do that when I'm scared. And so I got up and I told the story of rocks and, and now it's a story that I want to flesh out because it ended up being this thing where I realized like, this is a really cool thing for me to talk about. Like, well, and also, so this workshop later today, the theme, I think stories of belonging and so how a rock helps you with your feelings of belonging. Like already, I feel like you got a, a great start. And I think like, like anything, you know, it's up to anyone how, you know, whatever good you want it to be in the sense, like, do you want, you know, you see this at any sort of storytelling event. Some people get up, they have like a really good anecdote, a thing they want to share. They get up and they tell it and that's great. But like anything, crafting a story is it's work, you know, if you want to. So that, so then that's your decision. Like, do you want to put the work into it? And if Mm -hmm. you do, then you can just pull at it and really like, there is a, there is a craft to it Mm -hmm. to do it well but it's fine if you don't do it well. Like that's just, you know, you see the range always, you know? Yeah. So, And I kind of learned a little bit about the art and craft from that moth, how to tell a story book. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it, they have a quote in there and I'm so sorry that I'm not going to remember who it's from, but she talks about Jennifer Hickson is the person quoting the person, but um, the producer, the moth producer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but she says, you know, tell your stories from your scars and not your wounds. I always quote that. I think they started using that language like 10 years ago because there was one of the storytellers, I think, who said that. Mm. Um, but I think that's an incredibly, incredibly useful thing, mm-hmm. you know, because there's, I mean, I, you know, I've been to take that back the night marches. Like, you know, I've, I've added my voice to things like there's a, there's a place and there's nothing wrong with just getting up and telling your wounds. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but that's a real particular thing. Like mm-hmm. people come to those events for that, mm-hmm. you know, but I think, in general, if you're asking an audience to listen to a story, it's better to have some distance to it. And you're going to tell a better story when you're not deep in it, you know, at the moment. Yeah. And yeah. I've been trying to write, so funny, <laughs> I've been trying to write this imperfection story and this perfectionist story. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, not getting it. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. And it's like, Stace, that's because you're still on this perfectionist journey. Like you haven't made it to the, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But anyway, I just, I just got to that realization this week. Like if you wrote it now, you would still be writing from your wounds. Like you haven't, you haven't had that full spiral moment yet. The story's not over. You're still like it says in the book, I'm still living that story. Right. I'm not, I'm not that. And you know what I just realized? Like as we're talking, this conversation really started to flow when I put my notes away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's something about storytelling too, where I feel like, and I mean, I can always tell the difference. And I, this was a, something that I had to learn 
from the early years, which is you can tell when someone is getting up and they're just like in the story versus whether yeah. like they have the notes in their brain and they're kind of reading through the notes in their brain because you're just in it in a different way. Yes. So that feels like a really good place to stop. And I just want to thank you so much for coming and sharing your story, sharing your book, your podcast, and um, all of the storytelling tips that you shared. We really appreciate it, Jen. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. It was fun. Full spirals would not be possible without our patrons. So it's time for spinner shout outs. Thank you, Deborah O, Joaquin L, Beth W, Lori B, Brienne, and Anonymous for your general support. You keep this spiral spinning. Take a bow. I like my applause button. <laughs> Are you a patron? If not, you can support Full Spirals as a patron and receive exclusive content, advanced episodes, mini-sodes, and of course, a spinner shout out. Go to patreon.com backslash Stacey Parrish or go to fullspirals.com and click the Patreon tab. Join us and come Full Spiral. Spirals is produced by Boom Arts in Appleton, Wisconsin. Theme music by Helen Avakian. Production assistance by Jeff Ryan. Please remember to subscribe and review Full Spirals on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. Till next time, take care.